Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, at every Keenan family wedding, there is one song that is a non-negotiable, and it is We Are Family by Sister Sledge. Now, I am pretty sure that song is played at most weddings, but in my family, it's particularly appropriate. See, my parents have 12 children, and I am the only boy. This is my family. Uh, One of my sisters was missing, so there's only 11 of us out there, but that's us. Um, And so when the first drum beat, the first chord of that song is played at a wedding, one of my sisters inevitably will come and drag me onto the dance floor, whether I want to dance or not, and all of them will surround me because they get a kick out of making the one boy in the family sing, we are family, I got all my sisters in me surrounded by 11 women. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of a family tradition. I've shared a little bit before about my family, and so many of you know that I grew up in a foster family. Uh, Over the course of my lifetime, my family took in over 350 teenage girls who, for a variety of reasons, couldn't live in their own homes. Uh, Along the way, we adopted eight of those girls, which is how I came to be so outnumbered in my family. And I know as I say that, you've got some questions in your mind, so let me just answer them very quickly. Yes, I had my own bathroom. No, they never put makeup on me, although I have done plenty of facial masks. You know, I got to keep the complexion up. Uh, No, I don't know all their birthdays. Uh, And no, I don't know what order I am in the family. You see, I have an older half-sister who lived with her mother, and some of the girls that we adopted, we adopted as I grew up, but they were older than me, which means I am either the firstborn, the secondborn, or the eighthborn, which is the reason there are so many psychological papers done on me. Uh, Let me show you a picture of my family just a few years ago. There are a few more kids than this. Uh, My parents have 30 grandkids, and all in all, with spouses, there are 53 of us, plus a bunch of unofficial family members. So needless to say, holidays are a little bit crazy in my home. Um, Nothing, nothing has shaped me more other than Jesus than my experience of my family, especially when it comes to thinking about what a church should be like. Because this is what I think God desires for us, for us to actually be this kind of family, a family where anyone can belong, no matter what they've done or what's been done to them, a family of diverse backgrounds who, from the world's perspectives, don't really belong together, but we are bound together by a love that goes deeper than blood, a family that's always open and welcoming in people who need a family, people who don't have a family who need to be adopted in. A family where there is plenty of sorrow that we can share together, but we can also laugh and dance and sing because after all, we are family and we have a father who loves us. We are currently in a series called Home and I wanna share with you a secret you already know. Every human heart has a permanent case of homesickness. Every one of us has this deep underlying restlessness that we just always feel like we haven't fully arrived, that we don't fully belong. We get these fleeting moments here and there of feeling like we are settled, but they never last. A lot of times this comes up in the holiday season. We, we go to parties and family gatherings and these very homey type moments are happening and they feel very wonderful, but even at their best, there is something that doesn't fully satisfy. 
They never fully meet our expectations. They, they point, they gesture at something that our hearts long for, but we haven't received yet. This deep, lasting sense of home. The, the author, C.S. Lewis, the Oxford scholar, the one who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, this is how he described it. He said, these moments are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. According to the Bible, the reason we experience this is because all of humanity, we've all lost our home. We, we, because of sin, we have become runaways. We, we are alienated from both the place and the people that we were made for. And the story of the Bible is actually the story of God the Father making a way for his children to come back home. Some of you are here and you have lost faith. Or maybe you're just exploring. You've never really done anything religious before or you're new to church. I want to let you know, I'm really glad that you're here, especially for a series like this. Because I hope that what it will do is give you a window into what the Christian faith is all about, what, what good news it has to offer. And that'll make you want to keep exploring. Now, our passage that we're going to be looking at today is in the New Testament book of 1 John. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. If you're new to reading the Bible and you don't know where that is, no big deal. It's not hard to find. If you just go to the back cover of the Bible and you flip forward maybe 15 or 20 pages, you'll be right in that area and you probably will find it. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. And whether you are a Bible reader or not, I guarantee you have heard something from this chapter of the Bible. This is the chapter that says very famously, God is love. Now we're going to be reading just a few verses after that where John unpacks the implications of what it means. If God is love, what does that mean about how we should love each other? Uh, let's start reading in verse 19. We love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Keep going into chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Around here, we believe that this is more than just a human book, that when we read these words, we hear the voice of God. So let's thank him for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's start by looking here just in that, that first verse in chapter five. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Now, this verse has two statements that at first it's hard to see how they're directly connected. First half of the verse says this, if someone believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the king that was sent to save us, that person, their heart is reborn and they are adopted into God's family and they become one of God's kids. Great news. The second half of the verse says this, if somebody loves God like a father, then they ought to love the, the other people that God calls his kids. And so here's the link between these two ideas, and it's the first and most important point I want you to get today. When God becomes your father, the church becomes your family. When God becomes your father, the church becomes your family. Now, sometimes people will ask the question, why do I need to be a part of a church? They think, you know, my spiritual life is really something that's between me and God. You know, it's a very personal thing, and you can have a relationship with God even if you're not part of a church, can't you? 
And there is some real truth to that. Your relationship with God is a personal thing. If you are not personally, individually pursuing Christ, then no amount of church going, no amount of religious rituals is going to cover you. It's got to be a real personal commitment. But the question misses something that's really important that the New Testament says over and over and over again, that when God becomes your father, the church becomes your family. But people will still ask the question, they say, but is the church essential? Like, is it required to be a part of the church? I mean, I can still be saved and not really be a part of a church, can I? Now, that question does not have a simple yes or no answer. Because at the heart of that question is a misunderstanding about what it means to be saved. Let me unpack this. It's really helpful to distinguish between three things. The root of salvation, how you receive salvation, and the results of salvation. Let me, let me draw it for you. If you think of salvation as a gift, a Christmas gift, the root of salvation is how the gift was paid for. It's who paid for it and how they purchased what is inside that box. How you receive the gift, and I gotta make sure I spell this right, I before E except after C. I spelled it wrong last night and it was up there the entire time. And my wife, who's an English teacher, is like, oh, you know. <laughs> how you receive the gift is how you open up the box. What do you do to actually unwrap it and get what's inside? And the result is what's actually in the box, what you, what you find when you open it up. Now, the root of salvation is very straightforward. The Bible is clear. The root of salvation is what Jesus did when he died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. And when he rose again, defeating death and evil, bringing us new life, that is the root. That is how salvation was purchased and paid for. But how do you get access to what Jesus paid for? It's very simple. The way you receive it is you turn from sin and you put your trust in Jesus. You turn from sin, you put your trust in Jesus. The biblical words for this is repentance, turning from sin, and faith, trusting in Jesus. Around here, a lot of times we sum it up with just one word. We talk about surrendering to Christ, and that's what this means. Now, here's the part I really want to focus on, because the, when you actually open up the box, what do you find? What is the result of your salvation? Now, if you ask the average church-going person, they will give you one of two answers. Nine times out of ten, they will answer one of these two things. Most common answer is this. What do you find in the box? You find heaven, right? Heaven, that's what it means to be saved. You get to go to heaven. You get to have a future with God in the new heavens and the new earth, eternal life. That's what's in the box. The other most common answer that you'll get from someone is this. You find forgiveness. You find forgiveness. God no longer holds your sin against you. You are no longer punished for the things that you have done. You are set free from the condemnation of sin. You're forgiven. But here's the thing. These two answers are true answers. That is what you find in the box of salvation. But they are not complete answers. There are at least two other really significant things that are in the box that you get when you are saved, and we've got to take those into, into play. Uh, first is this, freedom. Freedom from the power of sin. You are not just forgiven for the penalty of sin, but you are actually beginning to be changed. You are transformed into a new kind of person. You do not have to be a good person to receive salvation, but by being saved, you start to become actually a good person. You are freed from sin. But then there's a fourth thing, and this is the, the really important one for this message. You receive a family. You receive a family. When God becomes your father, when he adopts you in, the church 
becomes your family. It's inside the box of salvation. So this is what this means. When people say, do I have to be a part of a church to be saved? At one, answer the, at one level, the answer is no. To receive salvation, you do not have to be a part of a church. That's not how you get salvation. But on the other hand, the answer is yes, you do need to be a part of a church because it's actually what salvation involves. It's what you get as part of salvation. It, it makes as much sense to say you don't have to be a part of a church to be saved as it does to say you don't have to go to heaven to be saved. It's almost nonsense because a future with God is the necessary result of salvation and the church, the church family is in the same category. It's a necessary result of salvation. Now, as a quick aside here, sometimes people ask the question, what is the difference between uh, the Catholic church and Protestant churches? What's the difference going on here? And very simply, the root of the difference is this. Where do you put this in which column? The Roman Catholic Church would say the way you receive the gift is you turn from sin, you trust in Christ, and you participate in the church. That's how you get the gift. Protestants simply move it over and say it's one of the gifts you received. So it's not essential to receive salvation, but it is essential once you've received it. You are not saved by the church, but you are saved into the church, which means the church family is not an optional part of the Christian life. This is the reason why John says in verse 21, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. If you love God as your father, you've got to love fellow Christ followers as your siblings. Now, when I was growing up and my family would uh, adopt someone new into our family, my parents would actually gather all of the already, you know, members of the family, the existing Kenans, and get us all together. And we would actually vote on whether or not to adopt that person. Now, some of you are thinking, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It's like the Senate confirming a presidential nominee, and it's all just, just strange. But my parents had an insight that's really important. When someone is adopted, adoption is not something parents do. Adoption is something families do. Because if you're going to adopt someone, it's not just mom and dad saying, we're going to love them as a kid. All the other kids have got to say, we're going to love them as a brother or a sister. And so my parents knew that if we were going to do this, we all had to be in to say, we're really going to treat this person as family forever, not just as a guest. We got to be responsible for this person. Now, I'm really glad that the church doesn't vote on who's allowed to become a Christian, but the principle is still the same. We are responsible to, to love everybody that God adopts as our real family. If you've been around churches for long, you might have heard people refer to each other very casually as, hey, hey brother, hey, sister. There, there are lots of churches that do this quite a bit more than we do here at Christ Community Church, but you've probably heard it. Now, that sort of language gets tossed around very uh, easily around here, but in the ancient world, the idea of someone being your brother or sister was a radical idea. In the ancient world, the, your family was a bigger deal even than it is now. Your extended family really was the center of your world. And when we talk about family today, most of the time what we usually mean is, is the warmth, the supportive relationships you get from them, the kind of emotional support of having those people who love you there. And that was true of the ancient family, but it was much deeper than that. It was actually very practical interdependence as families. Even as an adult, you would probably live on the same land as your family. You worked with your family because every business was a family business. There was no insurance or government assistance, so your family really was your safety net. If you got sick or there was a disaster, that's who you turned to. This is the reason why family loyalty and honor was one of the highest values in the cultures of the Bible. And so when the early Christians started calling each other brother and sister, it was a startling statement. 
There had never been a movement in the world that did this as much as they did. And here's the really crazy thing. When they did this, they weren't just using it as a metaphor. They meant it literally. They were saying the loyalty, the support that my culture says I should give my family, I'm going to give to these people. We're not related by blood, but the bond that Christ creates is a higher loyalty. We are literally family. And they weren't just saying this to people who are like them. They were actually saying it to people who wouldn't naturally be with them. The Roman Empire was a highly stratified society, and yet in the church, you've got the rich and the poor. You've got citizens and foreigners. You've got slaves and masters, people of different cultures and ethnicities, all treating each other like real brothers and sisters. Now, it was a radical idea then, and it probably should be a radical idea now. Let's be honest. Most of us, even if we talk about our church family, don't really let that idea sink in. If you are a Christ follower, Your first family is not your family by blood. It is your family by faith. If you are a Christ follower, you are more truly family with another Christ follower who is not related to you by blood than a blood relative who is not a Christ follower. Your church is your truest family. Now, the problem is that most of us don't think of church as a family. Most of us think of church as something more like a park district. The church is basically an organization that provides enriching activities for me and my family to participate in. You know, discussion groups and youth activities and concerts and so on. And that's a really good thing. I I love my park district. I love the activities they provide. And I love the activities that our church provides. But here's the difference. You aren't loyal to your park district. It, It may connect you with other people, but you have no inherent commitment to the other people in your Zumba class, right? You don't organize your life around the relationships in your book club, and you don't expect the people you meet there to make demands of you. But the church is not primarily about providing programs or services to enrich our lives. The church is about being a family for each other, a family that's on a mission that has a purpose, but a family. Even in a church like ours that has a lot of good programs, it is important to keep in mind that the programs are not the point. Uh, Michelle and I, we have a garden, and in our garden is a trellis. It's this you know, big uh, wooden structure with crisscrossing beams. And we've got it there because that's what climbing plants will grow on. We've got these climbing roses that grow over the trellis. The thing about a trellis, though, is that you don't just have it there for its own sake. It exists as a framework. And that's what programs in a church are for. They're the place where the climbing roses can grow. The real plant that you're trying to grow is a sense of family between people. And the point is the roses, not the trellis. The point is the relationships, not the programs. So this is what we want at Christ Community. We want to be a church that has the warmth and the commitment, the closeness and the care of a family. We want this to be a place where anyone, no matter your personality or your past, you can come and be known and loved. We want this to be a place where we carry each other's burdens no matter what people are going through. Don't you want to be a part of something like that? It would be amazing. What's really cool is that this is actually happening throughout our community. Think of one particular example. Uh, A man in our church was recently diagnosed with cancer. He had to have surgery, and the surgeon happened to go to our church as well, which was really cool. But the really very cool thing about this is that the surgeon, knowing that this man was a single man who lived on his own, said, you know what? My wife and I would like to take you in after the surgery so that you can live with us for a while while you recover and we'll take care of you. Why in the world would someone do that? It's because they are not two unrelated people who just happen to attend services in the same building. 
They, they are family, not in some warm, fuzzy kind of, you know, hey, brother kind of way, but in a I'll do for you what I would actually do for my brother kind of way. And there are lots more of examples of this throughout our church. Our church really is a family for people, except when it isn't. Because let's be honest, not all of us have felt like this church or other churches we've been a part of have been family for us. There are probably many of you here who don't feel all that connected right now. You like coming here, you participate in things, but you don't feel like you've got close relationships. You might even feel really lonely. Sometimes the church doesn't feel like family. Why is that? Why is that? Let me offer a few reasons why that might be. Uh, Here's one that applies to our church. This church is a big church. It's a big church. On any given weekend at Christ Community, 5,000 people participate in nine, nine services across four campuses. It is really easy to be anonymous in this church. If you want to be, uh, you can slip in and slip out. And even if you don't want to be anonymous, it really is impossible to know everyone here. Uh, Most people have about 120 people in their life that they consider friends. With an inner circle of maybe 10 or 20 people they know well, and just one or two people that they would say is a close friend, a confidant that they share deep things with. It is really hard for most people to have many more friends than that. So in a church like this, it is just impossible to know everybody. So if you show up here on a weekend and you, don't, and you feel like you're surrounded by people you don't really know, that might not actually be a problem. It might just be probability. It's just the numbers. Now, a big church is wonderful. There's a lot of energy. We can do some things that smaller churches can't do. It's amazing, but it's also a challenge. We, we've got to be really deliberate about taking steps to make smaller communities within the big church. That's the reason why all the time we are talking about community groups. This this is the best way we know how to do this. Getting together three to 12 people regularly to share about their life, to study scripture, to pray for each other, to support each other in hard times. If you've been around here for a while and this place still feels kind of big and anonymous to you, I really encourage you, if you've never been in a group, go and check it out. Go on the website, go on our app, uh, walk up to one of the tables in our lobbies and actually ask about groups. We would love to get you connected. But let me say this, signing up and even attending a community group is not enough to make this place feel like family. Because there's another reason why churches sometimes don't feel family, feel like family. It's because family takes time. Family takes time. I want you to think about your natural family. Think, think about a parent or a sibling. Have you ever asked the question, why does this person actually feel like family to me? Now, your first instinct might be to say, well, it's just sort of automatic. It's like biological or something. Like they are family, so of course they feel like family. But that's not actually true. The real reason someone feels like family is time. It's time. You you have a lot of shared history. You have a a bank of experiences that you've had together. And I don't just mean like the big life moments. I mean the, the ordinary moments of your life eating Cheerios every morning at the kitchen table, uh, bringing them chicken soup when they were sick with the flu, having them bring you chicken, flu, chicken soup because they gave you the flu. <laughs> Inside jokes, you've told so many times you don't even know where they began. Just the, the ordinary things that happen in, over time in families. You are a sibling the moment you are born into a family or adopted into a family, but to feel like family, you've got to spend time together. Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you've met someone before. And for some reason, very early on in your relationship with that person, you just found yourself sort of spilling your guts to them. Like you just shared your life history, even a lot of the heavy things in your life. And you you were very vulnerable with that person. 
And you expected that vulnerability was going to catapult you into a close relationship with that person. You, you suddenly, you're really close. But then days or weeks or months later, you realize, you know what? I don't feel as connected with them as I thought I would. Why is that? It's because as vulnerable as you were, you didn't have time for the relationship to grow. Like it or not, there is a speed limit on human closeness, at least closeness that lasts. You cannot teleport into feeling like family. You have to walk there. And this means that if we're going to have a sense of family around here, we've got to be patient and we've got to be consistent. Studies have shown that the best predictor of how warm you feel towards another person is not their personality or their shared interests with you, is how frequently you see that person. It's frequency. What this means practically around here is that if you miss half your community group meetings, it's going to take you twice as long or longer to feel close to those people. If your kids are in kids' world just once a month, they're not going to make many close friends at church. If you never hang out with someone from church outside of a church context, it's going to take a while for them to feel like family because family takes time. Here's another reason why the church doesn't always feel like family. Because family requires risk. It takes risk. To get close to someone, you've got to let yourself be known. You've got to allow yourself to be seen as you really are. You need to be vulnerable. Many of you are a consistent part of our church. You are in groups, you serve, you're here, you engage, but there is a part of you that's holding back. You're pleasant, you're around, but you are hidden. In your group, your prayer requests are always about things that are out here. You know, a sickness in your family or a work situation. And those are good, but your requests are never really about what's in here. Your sorrows, your struggles, your temptations. Or maybe for you, it's been a long time since you've confessed sin, not just to God, but out loud to another person. Maybe, maybe you've never done that. Or maybe you've never let someone in your church know what your needs are. You never give them a chance to serve you like family would because you never let them know that you need it. If you want to feel like family, you've got to take those risks because family requires risk. One other reason why church doesn't always feel like family it's because family takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice. This really is the true test of family. Will you sacrifice for the sake of someone else? It's the reason why many homes don't actually feel like family, because no one within that household is willing to lay down their own interests for the interests of others. But family means when you're going through a tough time, it affects me. When it's hard for you, it's hard for me. And that sounds really great, bearing burdens and all, but the reality is if you bear someone's burden, your life gets heavier. Now, here's the counterintuitive thing about sacrifice. When a mother sacrifices her sleep to take care of her sick toddler, whose love grows the most? Who feels more connected, the mother or the toddler? The mother, right? She gave up that, and now she feels more bonded with her child. When a brother sacrifices to cover his sister's chores, whose love grows most? Probably the brother. This is the strange thing. Most of the time, the person who sacrifices and serves gains a deeper sense of affection and connection for their family than the one who is sacrificed for. One of the very best ways to feel like family around here is to serve and sacrifice for somebody else because family requires sacrifice. Now, these are not the only reasons why a church doesn't feel like family. There are many more. But of course, one of the problems is not that church doesn't feel like family, but that sometimes church feels a little bit too much like family, but not in a good way. Because let's face it, families hurt each other. 
Like I said before, when my family adopted someone new, they would gather the existing Kenans and we would vote on whether or not to adopt that person. And in eight adoptions, only one person ever cast a no vote. You know who that person was? Me, me. Most of my life growing up, when we would have foster kids come in, they were teenagers and I was a little kid. So they were not my peers, they were just kind of older people in the house. And so we didn't really have sort of the normal interactions that those kind of you know, similarly aged siblings have. But as I grew and I got into junior high, uh, the first girls came in who were the same age as me. And I remember when my sister Michaela moved into our home, she was just six months older than me and we were in the same grade, um, but we didn't have much else in common other than that. Uh, she was very loud, I was very reserved. Uh, she was quirky and dressed kind of strange. Uh, she liked to argue, but she wasn't very logical and logic is very important to me. Uh, she always had a new boyfriend every other week and I hadn't started dating yet, but it's not because I didn't have opportunities. I mean, there were lots of girls. <laughs> When I was in seventh grade, just flocking, you know. <laughs> we were around each other all the time. She would we'd be at school, and she just moved in, and she would tell people, hey, hey, there's my little brother. And I'd be like, I just met you. You can't just call me your little brother. Like, what are you doing? And the problem was we couldn't get away from each other because we were the same grade, so we'd be at school together, and we'd go to youth group together, and we'd be at home together. And it was like, we're constantly around each other, so of course we're going to fight. So a year into her living with us, our, our parents gather us up and say, hey, we feel like God wants us to adopt Michaela. What do you think? I was like, heck no. I can't spend five minutes with her. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life with her. Give me a break. And I voted no. I voted no. Families are a place of pain. Now, you, some of you are judging me right now. You're like, that guy. But here's the thing. At your Christmas party this month, I want you to look around the table and ask the question, would I vote one of these people out if they gave me the chance? All right? So get off your high horse. <laughs> our families are the source of some of our deepest wounds, even if we have a healthy family. And that, that's the reason why it is hard to be a church family, because the same can be true here. There's a reason why John has to address people who do not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, because we are not good at being family, even if we are Christ followers. So what do we do about it? Practically speaking, how do we change this so this place feels more like family than it even does right now? Here's where we get to the second point, and just for those following along, I actually flipped the second and third point. If you're following along in the outline, it's backwards, so don't get confused. But here's what we do to increase a sense of family. We love others by obeying God. We love others by obeying God. Look at chapter five, verse two. It says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Now, there's a lot of things that are odd about this verse. Uh, for one thing, many of us, it feels strange for us to connect love and obedience. They almost feel like opposite things, right? Like you love someone because you want to, but you obey someone because you have to. It's really a, a strange and twisted sense of love if you say a slave loves his master because he obeys him. Like that, that doesn't make sense as love. But if you think about it a little bit longer, the connection isn't as strange as it sounds. If my kids are always telling me how great of a dad I am, how thankful they are for me, but they never listen to me, they, they never obey, they never do something I ask them to do, do I feel loved? Not really. 
If I'm always sneaking up behind my wife and giving her kisses and hugs and telling her how beautiful she is, but I never lift a finger around the house, I never help with something she asks me to do, does she feel loved? Probably not. That love is certainly more than obedience, but it's definitely, definitely not less than obedience. Another strange thing about this verse is that it doesn't just say we love God by obeying God. That, that makes some sense. But it says we actually love other people by obeying God. So how does that work? Uh, to answer that question, it actually helps to look and say, what, com- what does God actually command us to do? What are we supposed to obey? And what you discover is you, if you list all the commands in the Bible and say, what does God tell us to do? You'll find that the vast majority of them are horizontal commands. They concern our relationships with other people even more than they concern our relationship with God. And that's why when Jesus was asked the question, what's the most important command in the Bible? He actually gave two answers. He said, love God and love other people. Those two things are so linked, you cannot separate them. There's actually a group of commands that's very relevant to us as a church family. It's what are called one another commands, one another commands. There's about 50 or 60 of them scattered across the New Testament. But let me just show you a few of these. And as I read these, I want you to ask the question, if you met a group of people who were doing all of these things for each other all the time, what would that community feel like if they were loving each other, honoring one another, not judging each other? They served one another. They submitted to one another. They encouraged one another. They confessed their sins to one another. They prayed for each other. They taught each other. They carried each other's burdens. They bared with one another. They they offered hospitality to one another. How how would it feel to be a part of a group of people that were doing these things? It'd be pretty amazing, right? Like that's a community where people could heal from hurts, where people wouldn't have to worry about their needs being met where people would be challenged and stretched to grow in who they are, where loneliness and division would be overcome. This is the kind of community that our hearts long for. This is the home that we were made to live in. It's actually the sort of community that would change the world. Don't you wanna be a part of that? So here's the one application I wanna give you for today's message. We've actually posted the longer list of the one another commands on our website. Uh, The link is gonna be on the screen, but it's also gonna be posted on social media, and I believe it's in the notes uh, in the app for the sermon. And and what I want you to do is this week, go to that list and just pick one of them. Just pick one of them and say, all right, this week, I'm gonna, every single day, I'm gonna do something, even if it's a small thing, to practically obey that command. So for example, if you pick encourage one another, that might mean every day texting a different person in your community group and just telling them how much you appreciate them, what you love about them. Or if you pick pray for one another, that that might mean calling up a different person from church each day and saying, hey, what's one thing I can pray for you about? And then just praying for them on the phone for a minute. It doesn't even have to be uh, that long. Just pick one of those commands and try it and see what happens. And if it goes well, the next week, pick a different command and do it. Verse three says this, God's commands are not burdensome. Probably when you heard that, some of you shook your head and said, really? That's not how it normally feels. But there are at least two reasons why God's commands actually aren't a burden. First is this, the commands themselves. These commands actually describe the way that life works best. These are the way we were meant to live. And they might be challenging at first, but here's what you find out. When you actually do these one another things, it improves your life. 
You, you realize that a life without encouragement and prayer and service and hospitality is actually more difficult than a life with those things. It actually makes things easier. They're less burdensome to live that way. The second reason why these commands are not burdensome is because of the way God's love actually transforms us. This is the final point I want you to get today. We are loved into loving. We are loved into loving. Left on our own, our hearts are bent and broken. We are unable to love the way we're made to. And all our good intentions, all our hard work are not enough for us to become loving people. But here's the good news. 1 John 4, 19 says this. We love because he first loved us. Our love doesn't come first. God loves us even before we become loving people, even before we learn how to do this. And the experience of his love transforms us into the loving people we're supposed to be. We are loved into loving. Now, how does that work? It kind of works in two ways. First is this. God's love makes us want to love our siblings. God's love makes us want to love our siblings. Now, when I voted against my sister, Michaela. I obviously lost that vote. She was in the picture up there. So she's been a part of our family for a long time. Um, and I was pretty upset about it at first. For the next few years, we did not have a good relationship. Some of that was the fact that we were teenage siblings in the same house and it's pretty normal for that, that to be a point of conflict. But most of it was the fact that I wasn't giving Michaela a chance. I actually ended up talking to my mom about this. And she was really wise in how she explained it because she didn't just say, hey, Clayton, you gotta work hard to love your sister, which was true, but not effective for me. She actually told me a story. She said, you know, when each of you, my biological children were born and you, you were inside and I was waiting to meet you, I, I kept thinking, how am I gonna love another person as much as I love the people who are already part of my family? Now, my heart feels so full, I don't know if I have the capacity to love another person the way I love them. But then when you were born, God worked a miracle in my heart. And if you're a parent, you might have experienced this. Your heart grows and suddenly you have the capacity to love another person as much as you love your other kids and your other family members. She said, that happened to me when you were born. She said, you know, when Michaela moved in here, we had no intention of adopting her. But when she walked through the door, that same miracle that happened when you were born, happened with her. My heart grew and I knew I had the capacity to love her as my own. I knew she belonged to me. And she said, I know Michaela has her quirks. I know there are things that she needs to grow in and it's hard for you to get along, but here's the thing. I love her and I love the person God has made her to be and I love who God is making her into. And I hope that one day you can see what I see and you will love her too. The great thing about that is that that worked into my heart in a way just simply saying try harder wouldn't have worked. And it's the way that God's love works on us. When we start to experience how deep God's affection is for us, how his heart beats with love for us, it actually opens our eyes to see that God's heart also beats for the people around us just as much. And we start to say, if God loves me this way and he loves them that same way, maybe I should love them. If God delights in them, maybe I should delight in them. If God treasures them, maybe I should treasure them. If God serves and sacrifices for them, maybe I should do the same for them. This is the way God's love makes us want to love our siblings. But it's more than that. God's love actually makes us able to love our siblings. The more we experience the deep, deep love of the Father for us, the less needy our hearts become. 
You see, this is the main thing that keeps us from loving other people well. We, our hearts have these incredible deep wells of need. We need acceptance and security and significance and meaning and joy and these incredibly large things. But by default, we look to other people and we say, we either classify them as a help to getting those things or a hindrance to getting those things. So in some relationships, we go into the relationship saying, how are you gonna make me feel significant? How are you gonna make me feel accepted or secure or happy or whatever it is? And inevitably, you know what happens? That person lets you down because they cannot meet those deep needs. They're not capable of doing that. And that ruins a relationship. Or we look at a relationship and we say, well, this person better not get in the way of me pursuing what I think is gonna meet my deep needs. You better not get in the way of my sense of security or purpose or joy or meaning. And so we end up being impatient and resentful of the demands they make on us because they're getting in the way of what we really need, what will satisfy our hearts. And in either case, our deep unmet needs are keeping us from loving people well. And until those needs are met, we're always gonna mess up relationships. But this is where God's love makes us able to love our siblings. God's love is actually what our hearts have been longing for. We have been looking in all sorts of different places, thinking that's where we would find it, but God's love is the only thing that is big enough to fill those deep needs. And so when it does, when we start to be satisfied in God's love, we can turn our eyes off of our needs and turn our eyes onto the needs of other people and start to love them. Because the Father first loved us, we are able to love our brothers and sisters. His love turns us into family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love is vast and incredible and deep and amazing. The fact that you would take us orphans and rebels and runaways and you would call us to be your children you would adopt us as your own and you would love us as you love Jesus that is amazing God we can never stop saying thank you for that adoring you for that God the fact that you love the people around us just as much God it awes us And we want to be able to be people who love the way you do. We want to look to our brothers and sisters and love them and serve them. But God, it is hard. And so we pray that you would work a miracle in our hearts. That by the power of your spirit, you would make us the sort of people, you would make us the sort of church that can be family for each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.